Welcome to the Five Good Ideas podcast, where we rebroadcast some of the best sessions of Maitri's popular program. My name is Elizabeth McIsaac, president of Maitri. We're a Toronto-based organization committed to exploring solutions to poverty in Canada using a human rights approach. For each session of Five Good Ideas, we invite experts from the nonprofit or corporate sector to share five practical ideas on a key management issue facing nonprofit organizations today. In this session, originally recorded on March 25th, 2021, we asked Lisa Francis, Avi Go, Samia Hassan, and Shalini Kononur to share five good ideas for racial justice change making. Now, well, Everyone seems to be dialing in from across Canada and even beyond. I'm speaking to you from Toronto, and I would like to begin today's session by acknowledging the land where we live and work and recognizing our responsibilities and relationships where we are. As we are meeting and connecting virtually today, I encourage you to acknowledge the place you occupy. I am and Maitri is on the historical territory of the Huron-Wendat, Petun, Seneca, and most recently the Mississaugas of the New Credit Indigenous Peoples. This territory is covered by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Haudenosaunee and the Ojibwe and allied nations to peaceably share and care for the lands and resources around the Great Lakes. Today, we're going to talk about how to best address the growing color-coded inequality for Indigenous peoples, peoples of color, Black Canadians. What are the institutional, structural, and systemic impacts of racism, faithism, and related inequality in education, housing, justice, health, and employment. We are living in a time of heightened awareness, heightened public discourse on these issues, and they have never been so important. They have always been with us. It is just our attention is laser focused at this time. So it is the time to have this conversation, perhaps overdue. How can individuals, groups, and organizations engage in effective trust building, allyship, partnership development, and advocacy to build on our successes, maintain hard-won gains, and bring about needed change? In today's session, our four presenters will break down five good ideas for better walking the talk on racial equity and delivering more effectively on racial justice in Ontario and on racial justice in our organizations. Our guests today are... Lisa Francis, who is the Interim Director at the Black Legal Action Center, Avi Go, who is the Clinical Director at the Chinese and South Asian Legal Clinic, Samia Hassan is the Executive Director at the Council of Agencies Serving South Asians, and Shalini Kananur is the Executive Director at the South Asian Legal Clinic of Ontario. They are all also members of the Steering Committee of Color of Poverty, Color of Change, which is an Ontario-wide social change network. It is now my pleasure to welcome Avi, Lisa, Samia, and Shalini. Over to you. Thank you. And thank you very much, uh, Maitri, for inviting us uh, here today. Police killings of Indigenous and Black people have been happening in Canada for a very long time, but it took the killing of an American, Mr. George Floyd, in May 2020, to open the eyes of Canadians to the painful reality of racism that Indigenous peoples, Blacks, and other racialized communities have lived with in this country for more than a century. In Canada, Indigenous peoples and Blacks are disproportionately represented amongst fatalities caused by police. They are overrepresented in the criminal justice system, the child welfare system, and the prison population. And as the virus of COVID-19 spread across North America, so has a virus of anti-Asian racism. 
as opportunistic politicians on both sides of the 49th parallel blame the coronavirus of, on an entire race and thereby unleashing an unprecedented level of hate, which results in harmful and as we have seen recently, deadly consequences on people of Asian descent. These are but some of the ugly facts of racism that many Canadians are now being forced to confront. But it will be wrong if all we learn from the past year is that there are people who harbor hate and racist views towards Indigenous peoples and people of color, while ignoring the very deep-seated and entrenched forms of systemic racism in all of our institutions, in government, laws, policies, and programs, which have resulted in equally devastating consequences on racialized communities as those caused by individual acts of racial violence. People of color are two to six times more likely to live in poverty in Canada. We experience systemic racism and intersection discrimination on the basis of sex and other forms in the labor market. As a result, we have higher unemployment rates despite having higher labor market participation rate. Racialized men are 20% more likely to be unemployed than non-racialized men while racialized women are 43% more likely to be unemployed than non-racialized men. The gender divide has grown that much more over the last year, but just as before, it's women of color who are bearing the brunt of the pandemic triggered job loss. Racialized people are also more likely to be working precarious jobs, earn less income and work part-time. COVID-19 has exposed and exacerbated pre-existing racism that has long robbed racialized folks their sense of dignity and their opportunity to the best of who they could be. The pandemic has shown a light on the plight of some of our most marginalized in our society, including migrants and others with precarious immigration status who put their lives on the line so that the rest of us can get fed and carry on with our lives in the safety of our home. So at this moment of collective awakening, it is incumbent upon all of us to look deeply into our hearts and mind, reflect upon our own actions and ask ourselves, how can we make the difficult but necessary change to truly build back better? And for those of us who work in the nonprofit sector and provide services to some of the most disadvantaged among us, we also have the added responsibility to make sure that the institution that we work with is fully committed to dismantling racism and oppression, both within our agency and in the broader society. So to that end, we are offering five ideas to help build community capacity to work towards racial equity and racial justice. And with that, I'm going to ask Lisa to take us to the first idea. Thank you. Thank you so much, A.V. Certainly, Canada is an extremely diverse country. It's becoming increasingly diverse. Ontario is certainly very culturally dynamic. When I was in high school, we were documented in the local newspaper as having one of the most diverse populations in the Toronto District School Board at that time. We had a representation of something like, I think it was about 90 different countries represented in that particular high school. So I was very used to seeing and interacting with people from all walks of life. 
I met people from countries that I hadn't even heard of until I first met them. Looking back now, I think that my high school may have been ahead of the game by collecting that particular data. I don't know if that was their goal at the time to deal with racial and ethnic disparities. But I do know that by having that information, it could certainly have been helpful in responding to and adjusting to the community needs. And Amy was really good a moment ago about pointing out some well-documented statistics in the labor force. We can conclude that eliminating racial and ethnic disparities in the labor force is an issue worth um, looking into. It certainly help improving the equity and the quality of life for racialized people, especially those who are more highly overrepresented in precarious work, such as migrant workers and minimum wage earners. Um, so if it's important to make and measure progress toward addressing racism and addressing racial disparities in employment, and we certainly will need systems in place to gather far-reaching, reliable, and consistent data. I think there's more to just data collection itself, collecting um, disaggregated data. We need to be able to identify the nature and the reasons and the extent of the disparities. We ought to be able to quantify and then qualify the, the level of improvement efforts and monitor progress of change towards more equalization. Most of the disparities, I believe, exist because of systemic racism, anti-Black racism, and colonization, including supremacist attitudes that provide for institutionally created racism, and then reinforce comfortable spaces for the dominant culture to thrive at top-level executive positions, while the so-called minority dwell at uh, lower-level, entry-level roles with these very low glass ceilings. Um, I really can't think of any labor market, industry, or even professional field where it's not managed and controlled by members of the dominant culture. What I'm talking about is primarily white males. Um, if we think about why we even collect disaggregated race-based and other socioeconomic data and why it's important and why we're even having this conversation, it's because we intuitively and factually know that things are just unfair. I was in a, a webinar last week, a, a panel discussion where A.V. actually, she mentioned a statistic that was interesting to me. Racialized women earn 58 cents for every dollar that non-racialized men earn. Systemic racism is really the truth behind institutional biases and then the policies and then the practices that provide this, a certain level of privilege to some but then create barriers for others. So we need to be talking about disparities, not only on the basis of race, being Black or Indigenous or otherwise racialized, but also talk about gender roles and other societal factors and biases that make it a lot harder for people, for instance, with disabilities or people who are transsexual and people who are classified in other types of minority groups hold and maintain these long-term and top-tier roles. Color of Poverty has a resource. It talks about some interesting provincial stats and I'll share some of them. People of color make up over 40% of sewing, textile, and fabric industry workers. 36% of taxi and limo drivers are racialized. Over 42% of racialized people are factory workers, yet racialized people make up only 3% of executives and 1.7% of organizational board directors. Those disparities seem quite evident to me. So I'm not really sure why there seems to be this level of discomfort in talking about or even documenting data that we mentally note anyway.
we already know how many men are in executive roles, how many women are nurses, how many South Asians work in the field of IT, how many young Black people work at Walmart. I mean, we see these things on a regular basis. We know them to be true, whether or not we have the exact data. But I simply think that we need to do better and collect more information to better understand what's going on in our society, where our tax dollars can be more effective, how government funding priorities can be best allocated. I think we need to really be more mindful and have more thoughtfulness to go into collecting information about the things that influence our opportunities and our access in every system, every institution, every industry that you know, drives our workforce and then shapes our society including taking a deeper look at how policies are written and really importantly, how the practices are put into place and then what priorities become evident when we take a look at how programs are created, especially programs within the nonprofit sector. Those are some of the, the things that when we're talking about the segregated data, we really need to take a look at how collecting data can lead to an understanding that can provide more of a fairness and equilibrium when we're dealing with how, who gets the jobs, who maintains the roles, who, you know, calling the shots and, and how we can spread the love in the workplace and have everybody eat from that piece of the pie where there's not huge disparities, where some are overprivileged and some are just so underserved. I will talk about the second idea and I will build on what Lisa has already said. One of the key points that uh, Lisa has been making is about how a lot of the practices and policies that are within our institution may not be obviously discriminatory. There's a lot of hidden biases. In fact, that's oftentimes how systemic racism occurs. It's when institutions have hidden institutional biases that privilege one group and disadvantage another group. So we need to understand how it works and what it looks like in order for us to dis dismantle it. The second idea, which is related to the idea of the collection of disaggregated race-based data, is that we need to incorporate a racial equity and racial justice lens in the development and evaluation of policies, budgets, programs, practices, cultures, uh, both internally and externally. So for instance, in a not-for-profit setting, what we could do is to having a lens to make sure, for instance, the ways a program is de delivered do not create any artificial barriers for racialized groups or other marginalized groups to access. Of course, you need to collect racialized data in order for you to track the impact of your policies and programs, et cetera, with related performance measures and assessments in order to make visible any color-coded inequities and disparities, and then you can address them. Having a racial equity lens would also allow you to review, for instance, Lisa's point of who are among the decision makers at your agency, whose voices are being heard, and whose opinions count the most. Having such a lens would also allow us to ask, are we spending more time serving, let's say, a certain population because that's always been the case, or because these are the people who need our service the most. We need to also ask in the design of our policies and practices, have we considered the impact of these policies on racialized folks? Are there intended or unintended consequences that will exacerbate any pre-existing disparities? How does unconscious bias enter into the decision-making process, not only at the management level, but also on the front line? Do you have a process in place to provide a regular evaluation to make sure 
whatever programs you set up to promote equity are actually doing the job they are intend to do. So these are just some of the questions, issues that we can examine through a race equity lens. There are a lot of tools out there for this kind of assessment. So I'm just randomly give you an example. It's the racial equity impact assessment tools that was created by Race Forward. It's a US-based uh, center for research and action to promote racial equity. It's also a home to the Government Alliance on Race and Equity, which is a national network of local government working to achieve uh, racial equity uh, for all. So even though GARE is a US-based network, the Ontario government, or at least the, uh, the anti-racism directorate is actually a member of GARE. The founder is uh, John Powell with the Othering and uh, Belonging Institute at uh, UC Berkeley. So I would strongly encourage you to find this assessment tool on raceforward.ca. I'm now going to turn over to Shalini. So I want to talk to you about our third uh, idea, which is about intersectionality in your anti-racism and race equity work. I know nowadays that we use that word intersectionality a lot in our work, but truly it is critical to take an intersectional approach to anti-racism work. What does it really mean? For me, intersectional discrimination or oppression arises out of the combination of various oppressions which together produce something unique and distinct from any one form of discrimination standing alone. It allows us to see the distinct, different, and disproportionate ways in which anti-racism impacts different people in racialized and Indigenous communities. Without taking that type of approach, we will miss in our work the ability to respond in a more significant and nuanced way to anti-racism. For example, what are the specific sports for First Nations, Inuit, Métis, and Black women? As we think about recovery from COVID, an intersectional approach would allow us to approach our anti-racism work by really drilling down into who has been hit hardest. Not all people impacted by racism are impacted in the same way. And that is why an intersectional approach to race equity must form the framework of our practices in things like hiring, advancement, and board recruitment and organizations. Internal anti-racism policies in our organizations that don't account for intersectionality are not going to reach the most deeply impacted parts of our spaces and workforces. Also for us at Color of Poverty, a key tool for building a fair and equitable workplace is by creating strong employment equity policy rooted in intersectionality within your organizations. We have volumes of data in Canada to confirm significant race inequity at all levels in almost all workplaces. Even now in our own legal clinic system, we are having conversations around the desperate need for employment equity. We cannot make the mistake as not-for-profit sectors to think that we are progressive on this issue because we see time and time again that the data is not bearing that out. Our sectors are not immune. In many cases, we have failed to be at the forefront of ensuring employment equity. Quite frankly, for me, pledges, statements, commitment documents, EDI programs, they are simply not enough. 
We need to move forward. Workplaces must make employment equity a mandatory framing for hiring, promotion, and board recruitment. Starting from the ground up with a clear policy at your workplace and seek out examples. I've looked at, for example, the City of Toronto employment equity policy. Set accountability measures to measure yourself by, and both Lisa and Navy have talked about that, and ensure transparency. Part of that work will be collecting disaggregated data on who you serve and internally, what does your organization look like from the top down? Who is working there and who do you serve? What are the pay scales? What are the wage gaps? Who is advancing? And while organizations are now placing anti-racism at the heart of their external work and looking outwards, they have to look inwards at their own workplaces. Your credibility in advancing anti-racism advocacy also rests on what you do internally in your own spaces. Finally, and I'll talk a little bit more about this in idea five, I wanna say that externally, our organizations should also take up any opportunity possible to advocate for strong employment equity legislation federally, provincially, territorially, municipally, and center intersectional employment equity in our own workplaces and spaces. So I'm gonna pass it on now to Sonia. I'll just take a few minutes to talk a little bit about something that we've been hearing a lot about over the last couple of months, especially since the killing of George Floyd. There's a lot of talk about allyship and what that looks like and how that can be practiced in a meaningful way. I was just part of another panel yesterday. Somebody brought up the terms transactional allyship versus relational allyship. All of the points that I'm going to make today is going to be pointing towards what relational uh, allyship looks like. We want to stay away from transactional allyship. The first thing that we should do as organizations or at, even at an individual level is to find out where Black, Indigenous, and other racialized communities need our support. I've seen a lot of people guessing or trying to come up with ways of supporting on their own without even looking at the needs of the communities, whether or not they would like to be supported and wh what kind of supports are they looking for. So all of this information has been documented and is widely available by both racialized communities and Indigenous communities for non-racialized, non-Indigenous, non-Black folks. One of the things that we've been hearing and encountering is people that want to practice allyship asking racialized people, Black folks or Indigenous people to teach them about what historical inequities they faced, historical harms, and what ways that they can learn to support them. But it should be noted the burden of education shouldn't be on the shoulders of people that have already faced these harms and inequities. It should be on the shoulders of people that are trying to practice allyship. The second thing uh, that I would mention is that if you're a non-Black racialized or non-Indigenous person or organization, we have to stop practicing being model minorities. One of the things that happens when we practice being model minorities, we don't realize, but it comes from a colonial system where we are judged based on our proximity to whiteness. Based on that, we're pitted against each other in seeing who is more white and who is the most model minority. So it's important to um, not play into that system to be working in solidarity. So if you are a racialized organization, you're a racialized person to make sure that you're looking at working in solidarity without buying into the system of whiteness and trying to get being pitted against other racialized communities. 
So once we have the, these two things down, then it's up to us to, to show up, to act, to endorse, to support, and to connect. It really gets on the nerves of racialized communities, Black communities, and Indigenous communities when we see statements that are being put out without any action being followed by them. So statements are great. They show solidarity. They show support. But what actions are you actually taking to move forward? And a couple of things to realize once you're ready for allyship is to acknowledge that we're not being allies to take over that space from racialized Black or Indigenous communities, but we're there to provide support. Sometimes you may face rejection because Black or other racialized or Indigenous communities may not be ready to welcome you in their spaces that they've created. Sometimes we just need spaces for our own communities and for our own selves. So be prepared for that type of rejection if you're not being welcomed to those spaces. And oftentimes it's the rejection comes from historical inequities. So the question is, where were you 10 years ago or 20 years ago? These inequities have been happening for a very long time. So there is that feeling that we could have been supported a long time ago, but now because this is a thing to do these days to support Black communities communities and indigenous communities, a lot of organizations, corporations and individuals are jumping on the bandwagon. So really looking at your intentions, what are your actions and how are you going to actually physically and meaningfully support racialized indigenous communities? One thing I wanted to set out in terms of an example, in the setting of an organization, an allyship doesn't only have to mean that you're being allies in the presence of racialized communities. So if you have racialized or indigenous uh, staff, that you're just being allies to your own staff. It should be beyond that. It should be people external to your organization. It should be things that you're doing to support communities. I know we've talked about in the last three points about doing things internally. Once you've got that down and you have done things to support your staff internally, also looking at how your organization supports racialized and indigenous communities externally. So it should extend even from the people that benefit from your services, people that are not benefiting from your services, people that you may be profiting from. What are some ways for you to give back to those communities and think about ways that you can create programs and policies to support the well-being and prosperity of those communities that you've been benefiting from. An example of that is to create mechanisms to distribute the resources and the profits that you've created. I know that there's so many companies out there that have made billions of dollars in profits over the last year, even during the pandemic, where we've seen racialized communities on the opposite side of the spectrum really suffering economically. We've seen that for South Asian, Black and Indigenous communities, the unemployment rates are skyrocketing. The rates at which people are employed in precarious labor is disproportionate. So what are ways for organizations that are really invested in allyship and in supporting racialized and indigenous communities to allocate those resources, those billions of dollars that you're made in profit to the communities that need it most. Thank you. I'm going to end us off with our fifth good idea. That's talking about something that sometimes can be a little bit scary for not-for-profit organizations, and that's lobbying governments for system-level changes. Over the past years, we've obviously been having a more robust conversation in Canada around race equity. And our last good idea is that we want organizations to take up the challenge to advocate for systems change. Many of us on this call and who will watch this are on the ground working with people in communities who are most deeply impacted by racism. 
As a sector, we should be at the forefront of advocacy on systems level changes to address systemic racism. Governments continue to fund projects in community to address racism and hate and push the work outwards. The reality is that systems level changes that must be made cannot only happen through these projects funded in community. Communities cannot solve systemic issues related to racism on their own. It just doesn't work that way. We don't have the power to fix the race wage gap, to legislate employment equity, to ensure that racialized people with no or precarious immigration status have access to income supports, to enforce employment discrimination in the law, to immediately address the continued appalling treatment of Indigenous people and children in Canada. And I can go on and on with a list of systemic racism that happens throughout Canada. These are systems changes, but what we have collectively the ability and the responsibility in my view to do is to lobby governments to make those changes, to advocate on the issues that are connected to the work that we do. I know it sounds scary, in particular for organizations that are funded in ways where they are told expressly that they cannot do advocacy as a piece of their funding or because of their charitable status. But if you peel back the layers of those limitations, and I'm having that conversation on a board I'm sitting on at a not-for-profit right now, our proposal is not to do political advocacy. It is to advocate on race equity as it connects to our work. In so many cases, we are often in the best position to push out the stories of our communities that we work with, to push out the data that we collect on what is happening, the research that we are doing, and engage in all of those opportunities to advocate. But the question then becomes, how do you figure that out? It can be really overwhelming. I have to say that when I started at Salco, it was very hard to understand the landscape of how advocacy works in Canada and how to get involved. And to be frank, I still don't fully understand it. We have a very confusing way in which you have to insert yourself into these conversations. So what I will say is one starting point is to try to reach out to organizations like Color of Poverty, like Color of Change, to get information on the opportunities that we may be able to educate on that you can engage in. Look at, if you have a chance, the work of the Federal Anti-Racism Directorate, the work of the Provincial Anti-Racism Directorate, your own municipalities, anti-racism or equity and diversity departments. Look at the opportunities that come up to come out to speak up on those issues. Look at the things that come out in media that may concern the work that you do. So the other thing that I want to talk about is more of a contextual switch, and that is to really center advocacy as a fundamental part of your organization's work, which really leads to a change in the thinking about the way things come across. So what has changed for me in my own practice is I serve clients directly with legal service. But now when I see cases and I see the same thing happen over and over again, I am thinking about systems change. For example, my own casework in gender-based violence over the past year has increased by 35%. I am now thinking about how under-resourced and underserved racialized women are in our gender-based violence sector. So I will do the cases, but I am thinking about systems change. 
I think that is only possible for me because my organization mandates advocacy as part of my work plan. All of our organizations must try to build internal organizational capacity to actively advocate for support and change-making efforts. We are not going to see progression on racial equity and racial justice unless we collectively, loudly, and strongly choose to take the responsibility to include advocacy within our work. So I wanna just end by saying that I am hopeful that you are going to take these five good, in my view, great ideas back to your own spaces and that you will have meaningful conversations about putting them into action in the work that you do in your own workplaces and organizations. Well, I wanna thank you. That was remarkable. The richness of the ideas, they're great. <laughs> you, you've gone beyond, you've surpassed the five good ideas. They also are so integrated. They are so part of one another and they build on each other. And I think that it provides a bit of a roadmap uh, for those who want to engage seriously on this in their organization, in their work, in their um, own advocacy. We've got a number of questions coming in. I, I'm going to go back up to the beginning. There was a few questions on data and some. then it moves down a little bit. Um, I, I think an interesting one on data, which was a conundrum when I think going back, Lisa, when they were collecting race-based data when you were in high school, the question is, some of our program participants are offended when they're asked about their race and economic information, and they're distrustful of how the information will be used. There has been debate about how does race-based data get used. Do you have any concerns about this kind of data collection? Are there any cons to collecting, or how do we mitigate against that, I guess? I think it's delicate for some, and I, I do understand that. So I work at a clinic where we serve Black Ontarians. We're mandated to do that. So we still ask. We have to verify because it's part of our mandate. I've interacted with people who it brings up a little bit of trauma surrounding race and nationality. And they bring up the fact that we're stolen peoples from lands across the sea. So these some kind of things have come up when asking the question. So I understand that even... It might not seem like it would be an issue for someone from a Black community to ask someone, another person from a Black community about how they identify racially, but it, it does happen. Now you're, you're looking at somebody outside of somebody else's race asking that same question. I think race in general in Canada is hard to talk about. We have all kinds of reasons why that is. Historically, contemporarily, it's not the easiest thing to say to somebody. So what? where are you from? What's your race? It, it, it brings up stuff for people. I get that. You have to explain to people it's because we want to be able to better serve so if we understand the dynamic of the people that we're dealing with the people who are calling we can better create programming so i'll give you an example i work at the black legal action center and we deal with black ontarians who are um, in a low income categories and who are in need of legal assistance based on having an, an anti-black racist experience so i had a call from somebody one time that asked how do you serve people who are in the lgbtq community or transgender people. We don't do anything different. As long as they identify as Black and they have an issue that's anti-Black racism in nature, we support them. We don't have anything different that we do based on that. But then we got to thinking, I know exactly how many people who were transgender or in the LGBT community we do serve. I actually do have that data because we have actually collected it just internally. So it got us thinking, well, maybe we should have something but we would only know that if we ask the information we would only know that if we collect it and consider it and then once it's collected and it's considered then we can go forward that's some of the explanations that you have to give people is that we collect the data we ask the information so that we can better serve you 
we can understand your needs, the community needs, the provincial needs, and the global needs. If we don't ask the questions, we don't know. We can't make assumptions. Sometimes we make assumptions about where do we allocate? We don't have to reinvent the wheel. And we can always go to those who do have the information. We don't have to necessarily collect it all ourselves. We can ask. Or we can reach out to Color of Poverty and how do they have the information and then use that internally. Just to explain that to people that if we don't ask these questions, um, they may seem a little uncomfortable, but it's just a, a natural conversation about we want to better serve the public. And to do that, we have to ask these questions and we need you to help us. It also gives you the evidence to do the advocacy that Shalini was talking about. It, it's all tied in together. The advocacy, write the grants and get the funding, all of that. All of it. And, and to be able to say when change hasn't happened, we're 25 years into, I think of black high school dropouts, the number hasn't changed in 25 years. No. So if we hadn't collected the data, we wouldn't be able to say nothing has changed in 25 years. But so, again, it's not just collecting the data. It's what are you doing with it, the information? Exactly. Oh, so you're, no, you're absolutely right. You're right. Changing. We have to, it's the practices are not changing. I have another question related to data and it's open to anyone. The province is currently moving forward with race-based data collection in the areas of justice, child welfare, education. How can we get them and other key actors to adopt an all-of-government institution, service provider approach to race and other equity-based data collection? So this taps into the advocacy piece as well. So who wants to take that away? I'll start. So Color Poverty was instrumental in making sure that the province adopted the anti-racism legislation. We did a draft and sent it to them <laughs> and uh, pushed for the creation of the secretariat. But interestingly, when the act was first adopted, the Ministry of Health was exempted from the data collection. But as we know, uh, since the pandemic, even the Ministry has, of Health has come around and acknowledged that we must collect race-based data. So if the Toronto police of all people now collecting race-based data, then there's no reason why any other ministry or department will not do so. Like health, police, criminal justice, the child welfare, those are really the toughest ones to get them to agree. So I think that it's really a question of trying to get the government to make sure the legislation because they started with these agencies, but they will supposedly will expand to other areas as well. So I think it's just a matter of time. The problem is that we just learned the budget has given the uh, secretary, secretary, what, 1.6 million? It may not be enough to do the work that is needed. Yeah, just to add, uh, we were just talking about this earlier today, and I actually was confused if it was million or billion because I thought it was a typo, to be very honest with you. I think it's just tokenism, to be honest. It's not nearly enough. So here's a question that builds on that in terms of knowing that something has happened when you have evidence and nothing happens. But knowing that racism was investigated and documented at the HWDSB Trustees Committee and School Board, in your professional opinion, how do we hold them accountable when they refuse to hold themselves accountable? We as a community find this so disheartening. Can you provide some advice? So it's out there. We have the evidence. And there's, I think, Shalini, to your point, like, they, what, where's the path toward accountability here? How do you navigate that? That is a, a huge frustration, probably for all of the panelists on this call, because we have a lot of evidence already okay. uh, and a lot of non-action. There are different ways. Some of the more pragmatic approaches that we've tried to take in our own work have been through the use of social media and media. There are mechanisms now for public I don't want to call it shaming, but it's like public pressure 
that seemed to be a lever to push people forward. I live in York Region, and it was the public pressure and using media and social media that got movement on the York Region District School Board. Those issues had been going on for decades. And so that's one piece. As lawyers, we think about ways in which the law can be used as a tool to that forward. So there are potential for using the levers of the law to bring test cases to challenge the way decisions are made. Those, of course, are more complicated and take a lot longer, but sometimes we'll be able to have the impact that we want them to have. A lot of it is around one of the things that I think is the hardest for all of us to do, which is community organizing. The most success I've had when I think about the forced marriage campaign that Salco did was on the ground grassroots community organizing to raise the voices of the people impacted and have them get in front of decision makers at every possible opportunity, which takes real bravery on their part to be able to sit in such a vulnerable position and speak. But those are the things that worked the most for me. There's a couple of really great questions and there's a couple that get into how do we do this as an organization? We're nonprofits. Many are trying to do good work in the community, but inside there's work to be done. And and a number of your comments spoke to that. This person asks a question, and I I think it can be generalized. Do you have any advice for a non-manager staff person who is concerned about how the leadership and HR team are embarking on what they call an equity, diversity, and inclusion journey? Any tips for getting through to people who aren't doing the work on how they need to do this journey as an organization? It's difficult because now you got the power relations, right? If you're a, a junior member of the team and you're trying to influence perhaps what you don't see as an authentic process that the organization's taking. I think if there's some level of discomfort of dealing with it and or you're not sure how to deal with it, I would say don't force it on yourself. Don't make yourself more uncomfortable than you have to. Go externally. Hire somebody, consult with somebody who does do this work on a regular basis, who does understand, who can come into the organization and sit with you all and and talk. We're talking about, for instance, anti-Black racism. And you have the whole the confronting anti-black racism unit in Toronto. They have people who their job is to work with organizations and talk them through and walk them through strategies, understanding what anti-black racism looks like, sounds like, what it is, and how to manage it and deal with it, and then how to implement combating, eliminating, or addressing it within their policies and practices. Just have an expert or consultant come in and, and, and and work with you. If that's not an option, somebody else has another option, but I, I think that would be a starting point, at least to um, try to get an external person who's a little bit more subjective, who's outside of what the agency's doing, but can take a sort of a, a big picture look at it. And someone who's not um, already more invested into what's happening in the organization, but taking a broader look at it and, and giving ideas based on uh, a more outside look. In addition to that, I think what I've heard in other discussions is to look at other organizations that are similar to yours that have done building the foundation of anti-racism in their organization, as opposed to hiring one person to do the diversity and inclusion work and how they've done it and talk to that organization and use their best practices in your work. Yeah, I think these are all good ideas, but also are there any allies, there are people within the organization that will be sympathetic to your position who may be in a better position to raise it without the same level of uh, fear of reprisal. So if there are allies from within, maybe also speak to those people as well. 
So that leads to a, a couple of questions on allyship. I think you sparked something in those comments, which is great because it's a term that gets thrown around and it's important to put meaning to it. I think you did a good thing in separating between transactional and relational. And um, someone wanted uh, to hear a bit more about what does transactional mean then? Like, how do I navigate the difference between that? And then someone else asked this question, which I think is important, which is that recognizing that BIPOC communities and experts don't actually owe their time, ideas, or support to organizations seeking to develop an anti-racism action plan. We've heard a lot about the importance of developing relationships to make sure that our allyship work is a reflection of community need. Can you talk or speak a bit to what might be required of a potential ally as they start to build those partnerships? So I guess just digging in a bit more to the layers of allyship. So I think the very traits of a transactional allyship are, are really apparent. It's allyship that is done, that is very self-serving. It is temporary in nature. So you just find a moment where there's an immediate need. We we saw that last year in the summer. There was a lot of rallies and things happening and people just went and showed up and that was it. So there's nothing beyond that. Then what happens is you require racialized or indigenous people to explain to you what their problems are. You listen to their problems, you're just there, but then there's really nothing that comes out of it. It may just be a checkbox kind of solution if it's an organization for them to put out that statement and they check that box and say, okay, we're supporting a racialized and indigenous community. And I know there was another question, is there any uh, options of a transactional allyship which can be beneficial? And in my uh, personal opinion, as a racialized woman, I would rather not have any allyship at all than to have a tra transactional allyship self-serving to the people that already have privileged positions and just to make themselves feel good. So why have that burden of trying to educate people and trying to take bring people along your struggles if you, it's just to serve themselves? Are there any final comments from the four of you? You've done such a spectacular job of navigating this and, and shaping the conversation for people in, working in the nonprofit. And, and given ideas and, and things that they need to work on and work through. We are certainly open to doing a follow-up session if that proves necessary. Mm -hmm. I, I think one of the absences here is that we did not include an Indigenous perspective, and I think that, that needs to be here as well, fundamentally. It's a, it's a foundation. It's the, the colonial experience of Canada has shaped so much of what we are working through here. I think that is perhaps the next step of the conversation. I really want to encourage everyone who's here today to really think about in what way you can take iterations of these five ideas back into your workspaces. And I want to acknowledge that I sit as the executive director and a manager, so I'm in a, a position of privilege and power to make those changes in my organizations. I want to acknowledge that's not the case. I've been an employee too, and I know what it feels like to be in spaces where people don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear the issues around racism in particular. And so I want to acknowledge that, but in any way that you can bring those conversations back to your boards in ways that are safe for you. So I really want to encourage people to do that. Thank you, Avi. Thank you, Shalini. Thank you, Samia. Thank you, Lisa. That was absolutely terrific. More than five great ideas. Thank you for listening to Five Good Ideas with Lisa Francis, Avi Go, Samia Hassan, and Shalini Konanur. We link to the Five Good Ideas, resources, and a full transcript of the session in our show notes. You can find all our Five Good Ideas sessions from past seasons on the Maitri website at maitri.com forward slash five dash good dash ideas. 
And you can subscribe to the Five Good Ideas podcast to continue to listen to our best sessions. See you next time.